Good afternoon, and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the second weekend of September 2022, just a little over a week away from our fall equinox, and then we'll be back into the dark time of year. As fall is ramping up more seriously, lots of birds moving through this past week, a lot of sparrows showed up, golden crown sparrows and savannah sparrows, and warblers still moving through. Shorebirds are really starting to thin out, not nearly as many of those. It is a time of year when we expect to see a few vagrants. There's not really been uh, too many yet so far. There's a Hearman's goal that's been around, seen a couple of times, may still be around. Uh, I don't know what might show up. That's part of the fun of vagrants. And if you see anything that looks unusual to you that you haven't seen before, I'd love to know about it. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com. Or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. This weekend here in Sitka, we've had a little bit of sun. Yesterday, at least, I got out and got up a mountain, uh, got into the clouds. I was hoping that it would be clear. I was looking forward to watching for migrating raptors, but hard to see them moving over in the clouds. But it was nice to have a little bit of dry weather. I've noticed as I've been tracking the weather each day that this time of year we expect to get about a third of an inch a day. So it is obviously not every day that we get that, but then plenty of days when it rains we get even more than that. So definitely moving into the wet season for here in Sitka. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded and originally aired back in the summer of 2021. I spoke with Matt Muir, who was visiting Sitka with his family. He timed his visit to coincide with the Low Tide series, an avid naturalist and iNaturalist user. So we'll go ahead and join the conversation with me, uh, describing how I even know him in the first place. The, the entire reason that I know who you are or know you at all is iNaturalist. Mm-hmm. Um, we met through there. It's been a while. I think I probably did look at your observation map at some point, but I didn't remember off the top of my head that it, it was quite so global in scope. But you have observations from a lot of different places it seems yeah so i got i have a lot from my during my research years in botswana i think i'm not sure when i got my first digital camera it was maybe 2002 or something right and so it it started then when i could really take a lot of pictures i remember (laughs) i still remember having the film camera days right yeah and i remember being in these like remote parks and national and remote national parks in bolivia and I would I would go down there with like this thirty six shot right. rolls right, and I would take a ton of pictures, and I would come back and develop in, in the cars in you know the cars at Kenai or something, and they would come back blurry, and I would just you know, <laughs> know like I'm never going to be able to go back, I'm never going to be able to recreate those experiences, and so I remember doing that with camera traps as well. I had camera traps that were still with film, and so. Whenever that transition was, when digital cameras became much more commonplace, much cheaper, right? Where right. they were more accessible. Yeah. That's when I really started taking a lot more photos. And then, um, man, I I spent a lot of time in some really neat places seeing some really amazing things. Particularly some of the um, people that I worked with were just... Uh, encouraging right about just being walking a lot being outside and and walking at night and so i saw some things in the rainforest in peru and stuff that you know the few people on earth right have ever seen and i didn't have a camera right and so it's all they're all sort of stuck in my head so getting a digital camera was good and i started taking a lot of pictures um and then i discovered inat inaturalist in 2011 
So April, April, 2011, I think. And, um, that like just, um, accelerated, right? Like she totally changed my trajectory on how many pictures I took. And that motivated me to buy better cameras, right? more lenses and put me on a track, right. To just sort of take more pictures and also notice more in the world. So uh, there's sort of like a, a, a a post dynat and a pre dynat, Right. And like how many pictures I have, how many folders of photos I have (laughs) on my computer, I would say. Yeah. I, I did, I made the transition to digital in 1999. I shot both digital and film uh, when I was home for the summer here in Sitka. And then in 2000, I was like, mm, forget the film. It's yeah. just too much of a pain. I shot slide film in 99. And that first summer I had a one megapixel Nikon point and shoot. And I was frustrated with the macro because it didn't focus very closely. And then the next year uh, I got another Nikon that had a, um, a much better macro capability. I think it was two whole megapixels. Yeah. So. Uh, it was very, very different. And then I, 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 I think I still had some film then, but I just didn't, I mostly didn't bother. And, and then it was off to the races. Um, and then, yeah, but I naturalist, I mean, I was taking a lot of pictures before, but I naturalist definitely was a bit of a pivot point because I had been recording observations, but I didn't try and take pictures of everything. And I had been wanting a way to basically keep life lists essentially. And I had been kind of constructing my own little rolled my own thing via a media wiki site and cyber tracker and these things. And, and so I was kind of doing that on my own since then. And I've really adapted my sort of observation workflow to iNaturalist because it's a tool that did most of what I wanted and, and the rest I could kind of, I just adjusted how I did things to work with the tool, you know, and, and since it uh, privileges photos essentially, then on my and not that I didn't take a lot of photos already, but then my photo taking really and and then cell phone photos made it a lot easier. Like the quality of cell phone photos increasing was another significant um, shift. Like when my early cell phone photos, I just they weren't good enough for me, and uh, now they are. But, yeah, I mean it's really I mean, it's really different, right? There's a lot of photos. Yeah, a lot, I mean I think almost every photo I post on iNaturalist, right, it's not going to win me an award in a magazine, right, for photography, but. Like a really good photo is the one that shows the butt hairs that you right. need to see right on the <laughs> ant that yeah. can help you distinguish it from another another type of ant. So, well, that has been one of the interesting things about iNaturalist is learning like what is it that you need a picture yeah. of, you know? Um, and part of that really I've learned de- depends on how well you know your local area. Uh, so there are things here that. Uh, and this is one of the things about iNaturalist because of the way that I do iNaturalist and the way that, and, and the people that post and what they post, I end up being the top identifier for some, some species, um, because they happen to be common species here that are commonly observed. And I, somebody will tag me from like Eastern North America and say, uh, do you know what, if this is this thing that you have identified more than anybody? And I'm like, I have no idea because it's Eastern North America. If, if it were here, it kind of looks like that, but I don't know what else might be there. And there might be things that are tricky. Here, it's the only thing that looks like that, so it's pretty straightforward. But you get into insects and that kind of thing, especially when the ranges are so poorly known of many of the plants. The ranges are pretty well known, but like some of the insects... They just don't know where they occur. They might go all the way across northern North, North America, or they might be just on the East Coast or something. So, 
and getting references and finding that is a little bit of a challenge. So it's a nice mix of opportunities of, of people who do have expertise in groups that are or, or developing their own expertise. That's, there's been some, some folks on there that have started putting together guides, like there's a fly guide mm-hmm. um, that um, a, a fellow named Evan Dankowitz and I think his younger brother have, have worked on. And they're basically, it's just like, here's how to identify flies to the major groups. And then in some of the groups, they've drilled down and they're, I don't know that they're actually experts. I don't think that that's, they have an ex- academic expertise in that, but it's something that they've been interested in and begun developing. And maybe they're studying it as well, but they're not coming at it from being an expert to start with. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's really interesting expertise. I, and I don't, I don't, I don't claim to say this to be the first one to say this. So I think I heard this from someone else, but I can't remember who it was from that said, Iatris is the place where you can have these taxonomic expertise, mm-hmm. right? Really specialized, whether professional or not, but really specialized taxonomic expertise intersect with place expertise. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that place, right, can be Southeast Alaska, right? For, for, or, or Sitka or, or, or whatever it might be. But it also might be, there may be no one else in the world who knows your back, backyard, right? As right. well as you do. And so you may not know all the names of the things in your backyard as well as, you know, an individual may help you with this group and another individual may help you with this group. But where INAT is a place, it's sort of a, a place where those, those two things can sort of come together, right? And increase the understanding, right? Yeah. Of like what we're all walking through and living and seeing and hearing and but not always sort of uh, recognizing, right? Or, or or actually understanding that we're seeing. So, yeah, I really like that aspect of it. Yeah, that has been, uh, uh, you know, I over the years that I've been sort of pursuing my goal of, of seeing, documenting everything that I can here, uh, I, I've often commented to people that the hardest part is getting the first ID, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the stuff here is recognizable. It's not that difficult. It's not an ID challenge if you know what it is. It's getting to know what it is in the first place. Yep. And that can be because the literature doesn't, you know, if you look at in in one scenario, maybe all you have is the flora of North America to look at. And then you got to key through the entire North American flora, even if you know what family it's in. And then, you know, there could be hundreds of species and there maybe there's only one here. Once you know what it is, pretty straightforward. Uh, there's a fellow, uh, um, I, I think... I think named Jamie Feynman or something like that, um, Fenman or something, who did a PhD in a uh, university in British Columbia, but studied Antenarias and um, and Symphiotricums, which are two different groups in the Aster family or the Sunflower family. And those are difficult uh, to ID. They're difficult to work through the keys. And apparently the, part of the reason that they were difficult to work through the keys is because the people who wrote the keys didn't really do a very good job of the taxonomy. So this person spent um, their research time reviewing all of the observations, all the collections in the herbariums, and then also, you know, kind of the original descriptions and doing all this, and then published a dissertation. But then it's been on iNaturalist, and it's been helping to identify things and say, no, this one's that, and this one's this. And, and so that's been super helpful, because then it's like, okay, now I have a name for these. They're not that hard to identify, or there's some that are kind of tricky, and but now I know it's one of these two things. And that's, in some cases, that's as good as I can do. One of two things is pretty good, and, and I can be happy with that. Um, and uh, if somebody wants to, to get it further than that, then, you know, they're welcome to do the work that it takes to, to get there. But there is all this uh, nice mix of stuff. And, and some people just choose, like, uh, there's one 
One person, I think, Thomas Everest, who the first thing I saw this person do was uh, slugs. They just decided mm-hmm. that they were going to do slugs. They did a review of all the banana slugs in iNaturalist along the West Coast and kind of wrote up this nice journal post about slugs and observations and diversity and so forth and then sort of took it upon themselves to learn the bivalves. And so it's been really, really helpful. Uh, and I think this is, I don't know how old they are. They might be young, they might be old, but they just did it because they wanted to be have some way to contribute to the observation identification challenge and were, were interested. And so they just worked on developing this kind of expertise in identifying uh, bivalves and clams and so forth. And so, uh, you know, I don't know it, it, how I'm sure that, that they make mistakes as they learn, as, as we all do, but they go back and they correct them and they're doing a lot better than I am at those. And so I've really appreciated, uh, you know, getting some names, even if they're tentative at first. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it is, it's a nice way that people can learn by reviewing lots of observations, you know, it's like, how often do you get as much access to, to just looking at these things? Um, and I've noticed that in myself, just seeing these pictures of, uh, and getting these search images in my mind, you know, that it's a really powerful tool for just learning this stuff based on what other people are seeing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have not. I, I don't spend as much time identifying, mm-hmm. right? I, 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 what I'm really worried about being wrong, right? So I'm worried about being wrong on my own stuff, and I'm worried about uh, being wrong identifying someone, someone else's stuff. So I will be happy to identify somebody at a high level, at a, at a, at a family level or higher if they don't have that, um, and sort of suggest more, put more time sort of writing comments, right? right. Sort of yeah. like... Um, suggesting, oh, maybe you should look at this group or, you know, have, you know, it looks like something like this and, and drop a link in there about on, on a similar face. And I, I spend a lot of time matching photos. I'm, I, I am totally inept at, uh, at um, using most traditional sort of taxonomic yeah. keys. And it's not, it's just not something I en- enjoy, yeah. right? Like sometimes I enjoy learning the terminology and other times it just, it, learning the terminology is, is enough of a barrier that it's just sort of off-putting. So, um, I do a lot of picture matching, right? But picture yeah. matching can be can lead you astray, and so um, sometimes it's it's more just instead of suggesting a specific identification, just sort of dropping a comment and and offering hints that way. I think it's part of the ecologist in me as well mm-hmm. of really uh, being interested in the spatial aspect as well. So if I see something identified, thinking, okay, well, where you know, is that like where else in Alaska has it you know been been observed and um, both on my own observations and others. So I really like to sort of um, look at the distribution of, of where things have been seen recently. Um, and when it's something new in the state as well, right, it doesn't mean that it's a new record entirely. Oftentimes the museums or, or the professional um, uh, record keepers have, have some other specimen or, or some other right record of it um, being recorded. But um, if it's if it's for our naturalist, I often like to sort of drop a note. To, you know, great job. You know, it's the first for first dinat observation in Alaska, and because I think it just um, it's it, it sort of uh, keeps the ball rolling, right? And yeah. Sort of like you get that first one, and then more. Uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a clue on the trail, right? For other people to also sort of to be able to identify what they've seen, and, and more keep rolling in. Yeah, I've noticed. I've noticed your comments on the, yeah, first for Alaska or even your welcoming comments to people that are like, this is their first time posting and, and just kind of doing some of those friendly things, which I think is like, 
for me, because I'm mostly a high volume identifier and uh, then I, it's like it's hard for me to, to take the time to do that. So like, it's good to have both. I think there's there's a, there's helpfulness in in just putting lots of IDs out there and there's helpfulness in welcoming people to the kind of the greater community. And so I always like to see that when and, and doing that. I don't check. I do check insects in southeast Alaska for I check Arctos, the the museum database for those. If I see, I try to remember anytime, certainly I get a new one, I'll check it. And in other ones that are like, oh, these seem new. Um, I'll, I'll just run the name through a, basically there's a, a, a URL that I can post in. I can just copy and paste the, the name into the URL and it'll pull up any records. Oh, right. And the way that Arctos, the uh, Derek Sykes, who is the curator of the entomology stuff, he put in all the literature references as well. So if it's ever been referenced in the literature as occurring in the state, then those are there. So so then if it's not in there, then there's no reports that he knows of from the state. And so sometimes, usually, and often if somebody gives a name and it's not in the state records, I'll, I'll make a note. I'll say, well, this hasn't been reported in the state, which isn't especially unusual. But then sometimes people go, oh, well, in that case, maybe we'll back that off a little bit because we weren't, yeah. they're not... You know, maybe they were for a first date record. There's something a little more about it, but it's at least was suggestive as something that they thought. But you know, more research uh, needed in that case, and, and that varies depending on the observe uh, the identifier. Some people are are more cautious about that than others. Uh, but yeah, the the whole picture ID thing. I'm I'm right with you. I am not I'm not a key person. I didn't go to school for actually na- uh, science at all. And certainly Keen was not something that I, and it has, I, I've learned, and, and this is one of the things that's been really helpful for me. I think uh, iNaturalist tends to enhance this. Um, but for me, I've been, uh, Kitty Labounty, who's who's another local naturalist here, uh, background in plants and botany, and has been a guest on the show many times. And uh, local local folks here uh, know her from, from her radio shows, but um she has a background in botany and is and used to much more comfortable with keen things, looking at herbarium specimens, really getting into the characters and seeing that. And and it's like lost looking at pictures sometimes. She's like, I don't like looking at pictures. They just don't make sense to me. Whereas I'm very much like I've taken pictures, I've looked at pictures, and that's how I interface with plant ID. And so over the years, we've had discussions we'll say sometimes <laughs> verging on disagreements you know or or actually disagreements about what something is and and sometimes i'm right and sometimes i'm wrong and vice versa with her and i think it's it's the different perspectives and then the discussion because sometimes it's hard to know what a key actually means um you know you're working through it and you're trying to understand what it means versus what you're actually seeing and there's a there's a challenge there and photos likewise they can be misleading sometimes they look pretty similar and sometimes there's two things that are hiding and you don't really know what you're looking at, at specifically um so having that conversation that discussion i was just reading a book about um ways in which we kind of like we we tend to think of all the thinking happening in our brain but actually there's an immense amount of uh, our mind essentially that is is in our context. And one of the ways that we can enhance our ability to think is through conversations, discussions, disagreements with other people, that we are much more prone to finding the fault in others' arguments than we are in our own. Even if there are our own arguments uh, given back to us as though they were from somebody else, we're much more likely to find the problems with them. And so in that way, we kind of... um, we get better collectively, essentially. And I've noticed that sometimes people will post stuff and they'll post it with a lot of confidence. And I'm like, but but it's not right. And and I realize that they may have been just identifying stuff on their own for years. 
And and I've yeah. done that, you know, stuff that I just ne- never had any reason to question. At some point, I decided it was this thing, and I've always called it that. Turns out I'm wrong, uh, and somebody on a naturalist could tell me. And that discussion then helps helps us all yeah. kind of get better. I mean, I really feel like, yeah. I mean, all that resonates with me, right? So I I feel like one, this stuff only works as a community, right? It like it takes all types. It, it takes people who are really good at going deep into certain groups. It takes people who are shallow but prolific, right? It takes people who maybe don't have much to offer on the identification end of things but are happy to sort of like build up the community in other ways. Um, and another thing I, I mean I sometimes think about is that Someone on a natural should write the book one day, right? How to be wrong on the internet. Oh yeah. Right? Cause there's, there's <laughs> so many ways to be wrong on the internet and something like biodiversity, right? There is, there's no way on earth you can be right a hundred percent of the time. There's just too much to know. And, um, names change as well. And so you might have outdated information in your head that hasn't been updated by the most recent knowledge, or you got a, a, a sort of a bad glimpse of something that you are certain it is something when you really shouldn't have that confidence in you, right? And then there's a community aspect, right, that you're describing of like what it means when you actually start discussing with other human beings about how they see the world and you see the world. So I really feel like that book could be written, right? Yeah. By like the experience of, um, of being wrong on a naturalist and, and how that like uh, operates, you know, is there anything transferable into like the world of Facebook and Twitter, right? On how people are also always wrong on the internet, but like, <laughs> what does it mean to sort of be accepting and to sort of take those as opportunities when it's pointed out that, right, you may not be correct and to sort of learn more rather than be defensive. And, you know, sometimes people get defensive on a natural sea there. It's not like some idyllic world, right? I've heard stories. I have not run into too much. There's, there's been a couple of times and I, and I realize if somebody's coming from a botanical background where mm. they feel like they've gone through the keys and they've done that work and they came up with this answer and I'm pretty sure that's, that's not correct... I have to tag in somebody that can speak to them in that language because I just, I'm like, these bits here and those bits there don't look right. <laughs> you know, I don't know how yeah. to say that in, in, a, in a language that is, is sort of the formal botanical language very well. But I, I do have, I, I feel like in many cases, not all cases, uh, I feel like I'm relatively re- well calibrated in part because I've been doing these having these kinds of conversations. But that is, that calibration is one of the things. and And I do forget sometimes that, I forget that 10 years ago I decided it was this thing. And at the time it was hesitant, but it just over time I forgot the hesitancy and this is just what I've been calling it. And so sometimes that, that crops up and there'll be something in I naturalist and somebody say it's this. And I'm like, Whoa, I've been calling it this other thing for a long time. Uh, <laughs> and nice, the nice thing is it's easy to find those again and then go, go fix them uh, and, and to look into it a little bit more and then try and understand, you know, what happened here. And, I don't always remember, but often it ends up being something like I didn't really know at the time, but mm. this is the best I could do. And I wanted to put something there. Uh, and so, and that, that is a question, you know, it's like the, I was out with John Shaw, who is visiting here. Um, he is a world expert in sphagnum mosses and he was here to, to do a little bit of uh, collecting. And, and I was out in the field with him, just kind of showing him around and, and taking him to some places he needed to go. And, um, 
not everybody is willing to put names on things in the field. Um, was he able to do it just with a hand lens? He was, except for what he told me was, these are my field IDs. And he says, they may not be right. I mean, these are what I think they are. So, but, but they're field IDs, and that's what he would call them. And he made a distinction between that and his more formal ID that he would do after he took yeah. a collection back to the lab, had the microscopes, because sphagnums are difficult. Yep. And then at times, he said he had a graduate student he, he told me a story of having a graduate student who wouldn't do anything with morphology and IDs, was just all doing genetic stuff. And it was a good graduate school, but not interested in kind of morphological yeah. um, sort of aspects of things. And sometimes would come back and just say, just flop a collection back to him and say, you're wrong. <laughs> and he'd go through it again. And sure enough, he'd misinterpreted the key somewhere and it turn out that the genetics were we're pointing it to the right thing, but it's just like, he's one of the experts and, and, you know, it still gets things wrong sometimes, you know, just mis misjudging, a, a, a making a mistake in the key in the, in terms of how you're judging it. So yeah, I like that sort of approach of, of this is tentative and it's always a little bit tentative, you know, um, nature is complete is completely humbling, right? right? In terms of like how much knowledge we can actually use to understand and apply and then you know sort of in the professional ecologist sort of uh uh, uh position to try to predict right for, to forecast what something is going to do next year okay if we do this management intervention what will happen next it's mm. it's completely humbling right once you start getting into the fringes of what we don't understand or what we sort of think we know but it's tentative like you're saying yeah yeah, I mean, even as simple as just IDing stuff and knowing what's where. Yep. Um, you know, there's lots of modeling ca capacity now with modern computer power and statistical models and uh, artificial intelligence modeling, kind of neural networky sorts of things. And in fact, the identification uh, assist on iNaturalist and the AI model there does remarkably well with some things and just like ridiculously bad with some others at times. Uh, and and there's uh, definitely biases in there that creep in due to the way in which people have, you know, making mistakes without without the expertise and not really knowing, and that ends up in the data set. So it trains the AI and sort of creates this feedback loop. And there's been, I'm sure people are are doing research and publishing papers on some of the the pitfalls here and the ways that that works well or doesn't work well. Uh, I mostly don't rely on it because. The stuff that I know, I know pretty well, and that's that is is an artifact of me just really focusing on a on a place, and really getting to know the things here, and not really spending any significant time elsewhere or on things. I mean, I do identify things across a broader range. That's a very similar um, ecology, generally speaking, kind of the North Temperate Rainforest. But I don't. If there are things that I don't recognize, there are things that don't live here. Then I don't. I I just. I just mark them reviewed and, and move on. I don't try and figure out what they are. I'm not especially interested in learning the flora of the entire South Coastal Alaska. Most of, probably Sitka has got 75% of that flora yeah. uh, here in in the region and because and, it's just not that different. But uh, but it is, yeah, it's an interesting challenge to to understand that and, and understand the limits of what we know and then, and then do that in conversation with others and... Um, you know, those of us who've kind of been in our places, especially outside of academics, there's been not that much opportunity, right? There might be a handful of people in a community and you might not know each other uh, that are interested in these things. And so there's ways to kind of 
make connections. And then now, like with your traveling, coming to visit Sitka and um, some other folks that got in touch with me that are nine naturalists going to be have a layover in Sitka. And there there's people actually doing kind of natural history inspired tours. I mean, there always have been with birds and sort of the charismatic megafauna. Or I shouldn't say always, but but for a long time. But now it seems to be more general. There are folks that are like, you know, I'm going to go on vacation somewhere. I like doing this iNaturalist thing. And I like, you know, Group X. Where can I go to see some interesting of Group X? And yeah, I've done, I've done a few of those myself. Um, I've met a few people like you, right? Only, you know, I'm not sure we would have crossed paths, right? right? If not for iNaturalist. <laughs> so this has been great. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's been really nice that way. And I... I think there are um, people who really get into the details Mm -hmm. of natural history and biodiversity and sort of species identification, but it can feel um, lonely, right? Yeah. Um, Because uh, not everybody's into that. And so if no one in your family or no one, if you're in a small community and it's not a big enough town or village or whatever, right, for there to be a club or to connect with other people, um, it can be really lonely, right? And so something on the internet where all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden you realize that there may be hundreds of people in your state and tens of thousands of people, right, in your country who have the same sort of mindset. That sort of connectivity is really cool, and right? And worldwide, I don't know, you know, I don't know. Are we yeah. talking hundreds of thousands of people now who could really geek out and really sort of enjoy each other's company geeking out. Um, I think that's a, it's a cool thing. It's only, I mean, it's, it's not like we didn't exist before, right? Before I naturalist, we all had these um, interests and sort of inclinations. And as we were talking about with photos, right? And I naturalist sort of maybe put us on a, yeah. <laughs> on an accelerated it's, trajectory. It's, yeah. But, facilitated. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Facilitated. But um like we were all here before, right? There was all there was always hundreds of thousands of us on Earth who had these inclination. Um, I don't know. I don't even when I say hundreds of thousands, I don't know what the real number is, right? But like, there's a lot of us, right? Yeah. And um, and it's nice. It's nice that there's a new way to, to connect, and it's really nice to meet you. It's nice to meet some of the other people who use iNaturalist and Sitka. Really enjoyed that. I've uh, met. Um, I had lived in Washington, D.C. for eight years, and it was really nice to, to meet some people in D.C. When I started, I would say D.C. was one of these, you had mentioned California was kind of the epicenter, right, where it was happening. And there were really few people in Washington, D.C. using it. And it's not as fun. Yeah. Uh, it's not as fun when there's not other people posting stuff in the same parks you go to right because when there are you can say oh you know i you know i saw that you know i saw that snapping turtle too or um oh i didn't see that i would love to see that where did you see that kind of thing and you can start to have conversations um but it's really sort of blossomed i feel like um particularly in the past you know four or five years or so and so it's um, and it's also nice to see, um, and not to be so us centric anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, had, uh, spent a bit of time internationally. So it's, it's nice to sort of revisit those countries that I've been to or around those countries and, um, you know, virtually now, right. Just to, to see, um, what people are seeing there and how that compared to what I saw and just, yeah, sort of expands your horizons, right. About, uh, the world. Well, and there are plenty of people I think that that are on iNaturalist never post an observation. They're just they they look at other people's observations because they enjoy the ex- vicarious kind of experience. Yeah. 
or they're interested in particular groups. Some of them do a lot of uh, identifying, some don't. Uh, and it's, it is interesting, you know, even in Sitka, a small town as it is, the, those of us who are most active, um, I, you know, I know everybody that's most active in Sitka reasonably well, uh, that's most active on a naturalist. But as I think about it, you know, many of us, I certainly can say for myself, I started doing iNaturalisty sorts of things, compiling species lists, taking pictures and, and doing that. I didn't have a great system, you know, the iNaturalist and part of the reason I, I started using iNaturalist so much is because it was much easier to do the things that I was wanting to do anyway. So I, I know that I was already kind of doing some of that stuff uh, in the way that I was. I think iNaturalist facilitated that. And then, and then the community aspect of it, um, you know, it's hard to say what people would have done, but, uh, you know, on their own, I think everybody was still, was at least interested, but the, the fact that you're seeing other people getting out and seeing stuff and you're like, Oh man, I'm, you know, it reminds me of the stuff that, that if you're just at home and you're reading books or watching TV or doing stuff on the internet, you don't, it's easy to forget that stuff's going on out there all the time. And and you just kind of months and weeks, weeks and months can go by, especially in the wintertime. And you're like, oh, well. Uh, and then but seeing other people being out, it's like, oh, yeah. And, and then getting out. And I don't know, like theoretically, we could have done that without iNaturalist. But I don't know that any of us are social enough to be like, hey, we're going to get together and meet up and do a natural history. Con-. I actually like going hiking by myself a lot. And yep, I think too. others others do as well. Like there's there's a significant aspect of solitude <laughs> in terms of what we like to do. And so the social aspect of it would have been more difficult to it. And iNaturalist kind of provides at times, you know, a meetup sort of, hey, let's get together. Somebody's in town. We'll, we'll meet up at the beach or whatever. And so, you know, we could meet up at the beach all the time, but we don't. Um, and and so there is that, but there's also just that we kind of can loosely keep track of and then talk to each other when we do run into each other around town, you know, or via email or, or messages and stuff. So kind of facilitating that that looser network. I, I, I don't think that would have happened without iNaturalist, at least not in the same way that it has. And it's, it's certainly been an enhancement that way. And, and uh, if this sounds like an advertisement for iNaturalist, the nice thing is it's free. You can, uh, you can join if you want. And I'm happy to see the observations come in from, uh, there's been... You know, Alaska, perhaps unsurprisingly, has a lot of visitors contributing observations. And I don't know. I know you went through and, and kind of did a review. I guess this has been over a year ago now or maybe about a year ago that you kind of yeah, did the big group. year and a half, yeah. Alaska observations. And um, I don't know if you could tell kind of how much we're, we're sort of tourist folks or if there's an easy way to, to extract that from the data or not. But uh I should go back and see if I can. I mean, now, unfortunately, we've had a couple. We've had one year and now going on one, another year because of COVID of uh, really a lot fewer view- visitors. And then this year will be uh, more than last year, but fewer than an average year where we can try to uh, tease that apart of like the ratio, right? That'd be, be kind of a fun project to see um, if we can estimate um, how many observations come in from residents versus visitors. The one, one thing I did do, right, I did that uh, a blog post around um, observation patterns, right, or just pattern, mm-hmm. iNaturalist data patterns in the state, um, just because I got curious, right, and there's no other reason. But um, I was trying to understand um, in the boroughs and census areas of Alaska – why there was more observations in in one borough rather than another. And I, 
you know, sort of approached it as a scientist thought, okay, here might, let me think about, think through the factors that might affect that. And I thought, okay, well, something like, you know, broadband, right? Broadband connectivity. And, and with the general hypothesis being of places that have lower internet speed might be less inclined to, to jump on a, a naturalist. And then I thought, okay, well, things like population, things like visitor volume, um, can't remember some of the other ones, things I did. Think, or maybe it was things like... I um, think overall population. Yeah, you know? and like maybe area or something. And, you know, put it into a model and um, things like broadband connectivity had no effect at all, right? It seemed that that, uh, you know, might have seemed plausible but wasn't actually driving the patterns. And what was driving the patterns was was pretty simple it's just it's the number of people and it's it's the total resident population plus um the visitor volume and i got some of that data from it was some sort of like tourism survey that the state i, I believe the state commissions every mm-hmm. year and so you know sort of put these different data sources together and it's and it, and you took the number of people who come to alaska to do nature and wildlife viewing combined with the resident population and that explained the variation across boroughs and census areas um, really well, right? And so um, places like the Kenai Peninsula, places like um, Anchorage um, Borough, they were um, had a lot of um, observations, as you would expect, because a lot of people live in, in on the Kenai and a lot of people live in Anchorage um, and places like Denali, right? Not a ton of people live in Denali, but they have a lot of people that are there reported to come for a wildlife viewing. So anyway, that was sort of an interesting project that I did. Um, and so that explained the number of, um, what was it? Um, now I'm going to, uh, screw up the pattern, but it was like, it explained the number of observations and the number of, um, the observers, observers. Yeah. But the species one, that analysis didn't come out so clean. That one, um, hardly any of the factors that explain the other uh, patterns explain for species. And I think it's Sitka was the problem now, right? <laughs> like I had to, I had to pull Sitka from the, I think that might've been true for observation counts too. Yeah. Cause the observer numbers for Sitka weren't really out of, out of proportion, right. but the number of observations are, cause we have some prolific observers in Sitka. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it was the number of observation, maybe the number of species. Yeah. And, it was, and it was you guys, right? You guys have built a community here that you're disproportionate to the number of people yeah. here um, that um, more stuff was being seen and, and more observer and more observations were being made if I've got that right. And so that was kind of cool to do. And um, I think it, uh, it uh, showed the power of community, right? Uh, that if you build a little community and probably there's nowhere else in the state, right? There's people in Fairbanks and there's people in like, you know, there's a guy in Bethel and, there's people around, right, who are regularly using it, but I yeah. don't think anywhere in the state yet, right, has the uh, community that you guys have built up in, in Sitka. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. You know, some of us, I'm trying to think, you know, even even in Sitka, I guess there's always these kind of uh, power law things that are going on where, you know, the, the proportion of the thing as you go out, there's lots and lots of, of singletons at the end, you know. Yeah. We were discovering, uh, disc- uh, discussing that earlier in the day relative to the number of observations for each species, if you look at that. And I think that's true also of observers. You know, you have the the, the top five ten, are disproportionately, you know, weighted, or the number of observations from those are, are the vast majority of the observations total. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a certain aspect of that that we just have some folks here who have been especially keen. And you wonder, 
you know, is that this could just be coincidence. Obviously, there's a little bit of a kind of a community effect there that we've all spurred each other on. And certainly I've done more because I've seen what others have done. And, and likewise, I think, because there is something helpful in getting things identified. And I, I personally, uh, and I know Paul Norwood also uh, spends quite a bit of time going through and identifying things and, uh, you know, especially locally and regionally. And so it, it can be a little discouraging to, uh, to post something and never get an ID for it. You know, you just like, and, and never is a long time, actually most stuff. But my brother discussed, he, he uh, decided to start, um, he, he's like, the leaderboard in Washington wasn't actually like the top species getter in Washington was only 1,500 species or something. I was like, you should be able to get that, no problem. And, you know, you just travel around the state. There's the west side, the east side, and, and all of that. And so... Uh, and my son was kind of spurring him on. They had we- weekly conversations. And so my son was giving his uncle a hard time about need to catch up or, or, or whatever. And so he was doing that more. And he said there was a big difference because he had some stuff that he had taken pictures of here in years past and when he was here. And he said the stuff that he posted here got identified a lot more than the stuff he did in Washington. And I was like, even though Washington has a lot more people and and presumably more experts. And um, I think probably most of his stuff will get some attention eventually there. But it, it was, you know, it seemed clear that, that it was a little discouraging because, like, you post yeah. stuff and, and it should be really recognizable. Somebody that knows what it is would know what it is. He just didn't know what it was and didn't know how to figure out, you know, in the first place. Um, but there, there just weren't people that were kind of doing that on a consistent basis. So, so I think those of us, that that has been helpful for those of us locally. I think that that that's been happening. Um, but yeah, I know speaking to the broadband. There's somebody that lives in um, Dutch Harbor, yeah, uh, in Alaska, and and talking to her, she was describing how expensive it was for internet access. And it was almost cheaper for her to fly with a hard drive to Anchorage and oh <laughs> upload goodness. the upload the photos all at once in Anchorage than it was to upload the the volume of photos, you know, um, without really shrinking them all uh, from from there because of the cost of internet. But I suppose that's just kind of swamped by the other other factors and. and yeah, such, I so. think just the number of people, right? That seemed yeah. to be the, the yeah. Not that those other factors couldn't be important, right? On a, certainly on an individual. But I mean, it's correlated, right? Yeah. The, the number of people and the broadband access are are highly correlated, yeah. I'm sure. So I was I've been sort of watching um, what people have been observing and how how that's differed during uh, mm-hmm. COVID and 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 the years before that, and I I think it's primarily driven by. Um, not be people's individual behavior that live in the state. I, I think maybe, but um, I think it's just the drop off in visitors. Yeah. Right? We have a lot fewer marine mammals uh, being observed. A lot fewer um, uh, large mammals, particularly bears. And I, I think a lot of that's just Denali and the cruise ships. Right. The, mm. the combination. Some a lot of times those are the same tourists and visitors. And um, and there's it there's just been a lot more insects and plants, right? Uh, mm. Proportionally. And so that's been sort of uh, 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 interesting to think about as well on how visitors see Alaska different right. than Alaskans do. And um, like what we notice and, and sort of value enough to share yeah, um, with the rest of the world. It is. I mean, I'm just reflecting on bears, for example, we've had some nice, bear viewing opportunities here in Sitka out the road at Stargavin and I don't generally go out there looking for bears uh, it's clear that some people do um, and you know both people that I saw there and they're pretty excited those 
but for me, bears, I mean, they're fun to see, but they're like, they're one species, right? Like, you know, just one in my, in my list. So <laughs> this is a funny way to look at bears, but of course that's not how most tourists just, I mean, yeah. those bears are one of the reasons that they're coming to see. And it was cool to see the bears. There was a sow and cubs out there and, and one evening that, that I happened to, to go out that way. And, and there were definitely people that like to spend time with bears, but right. If, if what your main interest is, is bears, you're probably not, you know, posting every bear observation on iNaturalist. So yeah, there's a certain, I, I would think that there's probably many Alaskans who are specifically interested in bears, probably not the most likely to be doing iNaturalist. Whereas the visitors are like yeah. coming through and that's part of their documentation of their trip sort of thing. So I imagine there's a little bit of a selection thing happening there, but it is, it is an interesting, yeah, just how different people use it. Uh, and, and what it means to them. I know, you know, friends that like to travel, I, I don't do much traveling, but, and, and you kind of traveling as well. And, and I don't know how, if you like to look at your sort of observation map and see all the spots in the world oh, and, and it's one of those things. <laughs> I like to look at mine and see all the spots all concentrated in one area, but I'm a little weird that way. So, <laughs> uh, so there's kind of that aspect that helps uh, you know, in some ways, it's just like your trip journals of, of the old days, you know, your family, family photos or whatever, but it's, it's a different uh, slice of, of kind of the experience in a way to reminisce and, and sort of keep those memories alive a little bit, as well as contributing to kind of a broader uh, knowledge, understanding, or, um, you know, at least data collection of, of these things that can help support greater knowledge and understanding yeah. as people work through them. No, my wife gets really frustrated because I have a terrible memory and she'll, she's bringing up stuff all the time that happens, ha- has happened in our lives. And I'm like, uh, I'm not sure. And then it'll be like, oh, no, you saw that like dragonfly that perched on the rock, you know, during that person's wedding. And I'll be like, right. You know, that, of course. No, I was there. That was great. Um, and so, you know, taking pictures, but also just thinking about these like parts of nature really helps trigger, right? Whatever, mm-hmm. whatever chemistry is going on in my brain, right? The little, about, the little doorway into the, into yeah, the memory. That, yeah. Like, um, establishes memory. That's, it's like, a, it's a really important part of how my brain works, I guess. I don't know. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, I know that you have, you know, you live in Anchorage now and grew up in Kenai. Uh, I based on based on where I look in Alaska, I, I see that you at the very least travel to Kenai regularly. Mm-hmm. Often, often it seems associated with low tides. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what your your travels is around the state more generally, but uh, those are the observations that I've seen. And and I, I I'm guessing that you scheduled your trip to Sitka for low tides as well, at least in part, um, because you coincidentally if not happened to be here during the lowest tide series of the of the of the year so i'm curious about your kind of now you've been here for i guess what nearing the end of your third day as you're Uh as we're recording this uh what your impressions of sitka are and and sort of relative to to other places that you visited and uh in in the sort of the natural history realm things you like to to see and do what Anything kind of stand out to you? Yeah, it's been really nice. So um, we decided to travel to Sitka, particularly this summer, thinking that maybe this summer would be the last in a while where there wasn't um, uh, 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 the cruise ships. Right. Yeah. So we wanted to take advantage of perhaps a, um, you know a fewer fewer people around, and so. Um, Two uh, uh, little boys, right, three and seven years old, so looking for activities to do with them and um, wanted to travel um, um, more in state, I think, rather than um, still entering the world as it is right now. And, um, yep, definitely planned it around the low tides. Um, I really love to go down to Seldovia 
um, and Kachemak Bay, other parts of the Kachemak Bay around low tides. I've recently discovered Whittier as a much more uh, closer to Anchorage, a more accessible place um, to go find some tide pool creatures. Um, but just in general, it's um, it, today's the first day we've actually seen a little bit of blue sky, right? And so we've been able to see some mountains. Um, we went out on um, uh, on a, a wildlife boat tour this morning with, um, you might have to help me with his last name, Davy Lubin. Yeah. Lubin. Um, and that was wonderful. We had uh, a great time. Um, I saw some birds that, you know, are, are new for me, got onto a beach out there. That was uh, spectacular being on the beach with you and Paul and Karen has been awesome. Um, just to see a little bit of the state, right? I, I grew up in Kenai, but we didn't, we didn't seem to travel uh, to this part of the state at all, really. I had family in Fairbanks, family on the Kenan Peninsula, family in Anchorage, but none in Southeast. And so all this is new to me. So it's really nice to, to see it with my family and, and see what they enjoy as well. Nice. Yeah, I, I guess the Kenai Peninsula is kind of where the last of this sort of ecosystem tails off. You start to get into the things burn there, uh, especially, I think, on the west side of the Kenai Peninsula. Definitely. And so Whittier, right? Whittier mm-hmm. and... Um, Seward is kind of this... Seward, and then yeah. the Homer is a lot more wetter than um, Kenai is. Yeah. And so it, that, that sort of ecosystem maybe wraps around the, the tip of the Kenai Peninsula, and so you see, maybe see elements of this in the Homer, Catchmack Berry, and down in Sotovia. But yeah, Seward and Whittier. And what, what's cool, I was telling you earlier about um, Whittier is, right, you can be on... In, on turning an arm and that ecosystem and the Kenai Peninsula and then go th- drive through a mountain right through the tunnel and be in an entirely different ocean, you know, different feel of the of the um, ecosystem, much more, you know, the Pacific Northwest feel yeah. that you guys have. Um, and it's, you know, it's only an hour and hour, hour and a 10 minutes away from Anchorage. So yeah. huh. it's, it's, it's really dramatic. The weather can be completely different from one side of the mountain than the other. So oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. It is, um, an interesting just how, you know, I, I look at, I look at all the observations on Kenai Peninsula. I don't see Anchorage observations, but I, I look at Kenai Peninsula observations and the vast majority of plants that come through are plants that I know from here. And there's a few that, that I don't, um, and I've there part. And granted, well, this isn't a full selection of plants because they're plants that people tend to notice, so they tend to have showy flowers or or things like that. So, so there is there is that aspect to it. But it, there's a you know based on what I'm seeing, there's a lot of overlap. But I think it does as you move up. Uh, you know, I was talking to somebody about mountain hemlock versus western hemlock, and like western hemlock, kind of somewhere along the Kenai Peninsula, it stops, and then you get mountain mm-hmm. hemlock in the mountains, but. Uh, it's just it's too cold, I guess, for or maybe too dry for for western hemlock to to grow throughout there. So that's one of the dominant species here in the forest. Um, so one of the dominant species because most of this is forested area. So it is a, it is interesting to me at least to see some of these differences. See that some of the differences within Southeast Alaska. Just some of the things that show up more commonly. I mean, one of the real obvious ones is red cedar is on southern southeast, but not not even as far north as Sitka. So. You have some things that drop out. Salal is another one um, that is in southern southeast, but not here. You get some things in Juneau and Haines and Skagway that, you know, some of the alpine plants and northern plants that, that drop down that far south but don't show up here in Sitka, so I'm less familiar with those. And so it has been interesting to see kind of the um, 
<clears throat> the things that are, you know, at the edges of my awareness because I, I know of them, but I don't feel like I know them well enough to put IDs on them, which yeah. is how I'm kind of interacting with those observations. And so uh, th- that is an interesting way. And and then others like yourself and, and Kitty Labani, who we mentioned earlier, who travel uh, in different places and throughout the state and and uh, then have kind of this broader awareness more experientially, you know, as you're actually getting to experience some of these uh, ecosystems and 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 how they differ from from where you live, you know, in Anchorage. And I guess growing up in Kenai and Anchorage, I I don't uh, the climate's probably a little different. I imagine it's colder in Anchorage than Kenai, but yeah, yeah, but not as like right, not as dramatic as between. I would say the difference between Homer. I may be yeah. wrong on this, but I think the difference between Homer and Kenai is maybe less than Kenai and Anchorage. Okay, and certainly from here and those places, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's quite a gradient even in Southeast Alaska going from Sitka to Juneau <clears throat> to Haines and Skagway. Yeah. Um, that's just, a, you get more continental. I mean, Sitka is really kind of, and then moving south, you know, you get a little warmer, but the, the it, it doesn't get much more maritime than, than Sitka, you know, in terms of hyper maritime. So, uh, so we get all the wet stuff uh, and then the dry land stuff, not, not so, not yeah. so common. One thing, I mean, g- growing up in Kenai, it was not, um, it was not part of my childhood with, to, to do these tide pools yeah at least in yeah. my hometown we would go did they have sea week there or anything like that if we did we went down to like tutka bay and other parts oh, okay. out, out of homer yeah um, bishop beach and that sort of thing um where there were some tide pool opportunities but cook inlet right cook inlet is so silty mm. um with glacial mud and um the beaches are really really muddy and yeah. so there you know there's there is some stuff you can find out there but it's not yeah. it's not like the beaches not here. like the rocky shore the rocky shores seem to be i don't know if they're actually more diverse but they're a lot more accessibly diverse let's put it that way because yeah. you can see the stuff you know yeah um, i think if you dig in the mud a lot of times there's a lot of stuff in there but so really gotta, it's been coming back here as an adult where yeah. I've really gotten into it. Um, tide pool, right? I guess tide pools and insects are like my thing yeah. right now in Alaska. So. Well, there's plenty of diversity in in both of those. <laughs> uh, I'm trying. I wish there was an easier way to sort of identify to mark the things that were intertidal or marine. You know, because and granted, intertidal is kind of a continuum um, from the very highest sort of splash zony stuff to mm-hmm. to basically marine. Um, but because I'm curious, like the diversity, I, I suspect the intertidal diversity is one of the highest, you know, considering that at least here we're talking about, um, you know, 14 feet of tide range, which, you know, is m- m- depends on on the nature of the, the slope there. But uh, the amount of actual area of that is not it's not huge. Uh, and, and the amount of diversity that's in that little strip is pretty incredible. Um, I'm not sure how it compares to the diversity of, say, a forest or I mean, I'm sure it's higher than alpine, but um, forested areas or meadows or something like that. But um, my guess is that a lot of the species that I have observed have been, even though I don't really focus on that, um, have been intertidal, intertidal things. Uh, I would think so. I mean, land's got beetles, right? The right. beetles are... Insects and insects are difficult to be fair, and a lot of them are really small. Yeah, and Alaska's got flies too. We got a lot of lot of flies, but flies also are, are difficult. And so when I did that blog pass a while back that we were talking about, right, mm-hmm. I looked into um, how different iNaturalist observers in Alaska were doing across different taxonomic groups, and for things like birds, we've got like ninety nine percent of yeah. everything that's um, resident here in the state. Um, for things like insects, it's like less than 10%. Mm. 
Yeah. We don't really know how much more or less. Because we don't even know. It's hard to even know what the total number of insect species that occur in Alaska. But it's certainly less than 10% of even the known species. Um, So there's just a lot out there that we don't, we haven't sort of seen and taken a picture of and been able to identify online, right? There's, yeah, there's a lot yeah. known out there. Well, I mean, even, yeah, with the insects, I've seen Derek Sykes has is, is, uh, put out some or did a talk and, and showed species accumulation curves, uh, known species in Alaska of insects. And it's just like it's still in the yep. in the steep part of the climb. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of species yet to be discovered some new to science but many of them just new to the state you know and and iNaturalist has been uh, people observing I should iNaturalist has facilitated the the awareness of some of those things because people have you know found a moth or whatever at their light and put a picture up and they're like oh that one hasn't been reported from Alaska before so it's it's always I I enjoy that it's always fun to find something new you know I'm not out there only to find new things but I both enjoy finding uh, the novelty uh, itch is, is strong, I guess. I like I like both seeing things again each year, sort of I like to call it renewing acquaintances mm. and just kind of renewing acquaintances with things that, uh, you know, a species that I am familiar with in the past. And so often there are places where I only know of something in one place around here and I will try to make a trip there each year, you know, whether it's the high alpine or whatever at least once just to go see some of those species that that's the only place I know that they are. It gives me a reason to get out, but it's also fine, fun to find things that I've never seen before. Uh, and sometimes that's, you know, something I recognize in the moment, Hey, this is new. And sometimes it's something that I just happen to take a picture. And sometimes it's something I seek out. It's like, Oh, this thing should be here. Let me go see if I can find it. And so it's kind of a mix of those things at this point in my in my uh, activities, I guess. So, uh, but I limit myself geographically speaking. So I have to work a little, a little harder in that regard to find find my new species. Uh, I could probably travel elsewhere and find find new species a little a little more easily. But uh, uh, I'm I'm a little less inclined to do that than than some of us are. So um, so it's been fun. But it's been fun meeting you here. And and uh, yeah, glad you could. Uh, spend some time to visit with me for for the radio show here. And uh, just as we wrap up, anything else that you want to mention? No, thank you. It's been great. Yeah. And yeah, let me know if you come back to Sitka again. Happy to Happy to get out some more. I'll do that. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded with Matt Muir back in June of 2021. He was visiting Sitka with his family, getting a taste of Southeast Alaska and scheduled his time here to coincide with the Low Tide series. And I want to thank him for taking some time out of his trip to visit with me. And thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. As we're getting fully into fall, I'm especially interested in any unusual birds you might be seeing, something that you don't recognize, perhaps. It is a time of year when we expect to see some vagrants. We never know where they might show up, but often in the fall, there are birds that uh, just went the wrong direction and end up a little bit lost. It's great fun to try and see some of those and see what shows up. So yeah, please let me know if you see anything unusual. I look forward to being back in a couple of weeks. Until then, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCW Sitka.